Cynic Empowerment. Welcome, everyone. This is Cynic Empowerment. My name is Jimmy Horn. And I'm Tim Carpenter. Welcome, everyone. Ooh-wee, we've got a special episode for you today. We have our first ever guest. Everybody, welcome Josiah Thomas. Thank you to the both of you. I'm excited to be the first guest appearance on the show. That's right. Our expectations are very high. Yes, as they should be. (laughs) Uh, Okay, so... Uh, today's topic uh, is going to be a bit of a general one. Uh, so we are going to be discussing uh, the function that poverty plays uh, in the United States, uh, as well as some of the effects that poverty has uh, on the people that are that it is impressed on. So, gentlemen, where would we like to start? I, I would assume we'd probably want to define some parameters, right? Yeah, that sounds good. I'm going to go to a reliable source, Google, and I'm yep. going to type in the word poverty. And po- so... A, a po- state of shittiness, a uh, right. place you definitely <laughs> don't want to be. Yeah, you know, you're close. So poverty, as defined by Google, is a state of being extremely poor. Or, or a more, or? I, I guess, uh, <laughs> sufficient definition is the state of being inferior in quality or insufficient in amount. So, oh, I, when, yeah, <laughs> pretty sad. That uh, second uh, one just it kind of hurts a little bit. I'm in, it's, I'm inferior quality. Oh. <laughs> yeah. So I would I would guess in a broader sense it's you know not being able to afford to pay for your your most basic. Uh, things you need in order to live a prosperous life, such as housing and food and health care mm-hmm. and maybe in the 21st century internet, right? Yeah, mm-hmm. it's very true. Well, uh, it, it doesn't really say that it, it's relegated only to uh, monetary senses, right? So you could just uh, say like, Natural inequality, right? You're not as as big or as strong as someone else, uh, or uh, maybe you are born in a certain area that has access to natural resources that are, uh, you know, much more useful to whatever type of trade that you're dealing with. I mean, let's say that your your family owns land. I mean, like it's it's not necessarily money, but it, I think it still kind of fall into those same categories, right? Well, it'd be wealth, right? And generally people that have wealth aren't usually regulated to worrying about poverty, but not always the case. I mean, I'm sure there's plenty of farmers living in poverty that have land but have no way to make money with it. So mm-hmm. so what if, what if you're someone who uh, is not necessarily impoverished, not, not someone who is experiencing uh, hunger uh, or uh, a lack of health care or what have you, uh, but – Everyone around them is substantially more wealthy than they are. Does that mean that they're impoverished? Not necessarily. I mean, I guess comparatively, they would be uh, <laughs> less well off. But I think as long as you're, uh, it doesn't fit under the definition of being extremely poor, right? If they're if they're having all their basic needs met, they wouldn't necessarily be poor. I mean, I, unless you're like at like some like 
Galt house, I don't know, golf course kind of scenario. We're like, oh, look at him. He isn't wearing a Rolex. He must be poor, right? Like, unless, which, which did actually happen to our guest here, Josiah and I, at a, uh, a horse track once. So, you oh know my what that goodness, feels like. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I guess there's a, there could be like a social aspect of it where it's just like, like you were saying, in terms monetary uh, wise, the person has enough, like well off, but mm-hmm. like in a kind of social capital wise, since they're just not quite up to par with their surroundings, it still has a negative impact on them. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I don't know if we could actually categorize it as poverty in like a uh, general sense. Yeah. Well, but definitely but, negative somehow. Yeah, it could affect your your, your social standing. Uh, and you could certainly be stigmatized as a result of not having a fucking Rolex. Yeah. <laughs> right. Totally or in like, our case, it was uh, the correct jacket. Yeah. Our, yeah. Our, our sports jackets weren't up to par. What? Yeah, that's, that's what we were <laughs> criticized for. Do you like, have like a openly. Yours, Jimmy? What's that? Did you have like a big unicorn on yours or I something? I wish. No. Okay. So uh, <laughs> this is totally side railing, but I'm going to talk about it anyway since Josiah is here and it fits the subject. So what happened is we um, we had access to the uh, second level of this uh, the Del Mar racetrack in San Diego because of Ooh. someone Josiah knew, knew someone from the Rotary Club. He knew like the president of the racetrack. And he, so he wow. like uh, – and so – and he – uh, since he knew him through the Rotary Club, was like, here you go, here's some tickets, enjoy. And right. so we went, and Josiah and I are fucking schmucks that don't have nice clothes. <laughs> and so when we wanted to go to the second floor, as our tickets said that we could, they were like, oh, yeah, about that. You can't get on the second floor unless you have a sports jacket. That's like the law of the land. And we're like, oh, shucks, right. this sucks. They're like, well, wait a second. Maybe we have some loner jackets in our closet here. And so the, the lady goes and opens up this jacket that probably, I mean, not this jacket, this closet that probably hasn't been opened in like 20 years because <laughs> everyone else knows the program. And right. we have like these matching like green sports jackets jackets that don't necessarily fit us great but you know now now we have access to the promised land and as we're walking (laughs) around getting like uh, a lay of the scene this freaking pretentious woman like stops us and starts accosting us like openly and loudly like are those loner jackets yeah She's like, oh, how how quaint all of your jackets match. Wait a second. Wait a second. Let me put this together. Are those loner jackets? They're wearing <laughs> loner jackets. Can you believe it? <laughs> God. That's it, essentially like... how it happened. Like, that is only a slight exaggeration of exactly how the lady was. Yeah. Oh, my God. It was disgusting. It was so yeah. gross. Did she call, like, her little, like, country club buddies over and they, like, all laughed at you all through their monocles, you know? <laughs> um, I, I'm sure it would have gotten to that point. I think we – what did we even do? We I think walked we away. Kind of we we didn't know what to yeah. say. We were, yeah, just, we were just in shock. Yeah, we've, I've never been openly accosted for being poor before. Uh, <laughs> so I wasn't which, quite sure how which to I guess respond. Speaks, does speak to the question of, like – if you were pretty well off, but everyone else is way better off, uh, what does that mean? Because, yeah, I mean, by being at the Del Mar race, we're already far from yeah. being 
poor, right? Uh, <laughs> but yeah, even within that, uh, we could be, I don't know, shamed or humiliated, which again, like not, it doesn't mean we're going to go back and not have somewhere to sleep or food to eat, but it's still like a social, you know, negative social impact, yeah. uh, an emotional impact. <laughs> it us feel bad. I have yeah. dreams about it. Yeah. <laughs> Nightmares. Yeah. That being said, the rich part of the racetrack, if you so if you got a if you got a beer down on the poor area where we originally were, they would like serve it in like a plastic cup. But for yeah. the same price, if you got a beer up in the fancy area, they'd serve it to you in an iced mug, Tim. An iced what? mug. Same price? Same price. Ice That's mug. bullshit. It is bullshit. But it obviously requires more resources to have iced mugs on hand. Mm-hmm. Wait, it, all right, devil's advocate moment here. Okay. I'm going to say that <laughs> they probably are paid, like, more expensive tickets, which covers more of those, like, overhead costs of, like, a cold mug. That's right. They really do deserve those cold mugs. <laughs> yeah, they do. As they stand like, around in their sports jackets. The, the question yeah. would be, do they deserve the money they're making that makes them pay the more expensive tickets? <laughs> the more expensive ticket probably covers the chilled mug. Yeah, <laughs> I would say so. They, they spent so much money on their, their dumbass jackets that they don't have enough money and people <laughs> take compassion on them. Right. It's like, look at these taps, just like, so desperate to look like they have money. Let's just give them a chilled beer. That's right. It's a, it's a choice. <laughs> oh, we should geez. feel bad for them. Yeah. Exactly. That's what we're trying to say here. Rich <laughs> people are actually the victims. Yeah. Yeah. So I guess it goes without saying we are probably focusing on abject poverty. Uh, we don't necessarily. Uh, so we could we could probably posture on relative poverty all day. Um, all of these various instances in which people aren't quite as wealthy as someone else. I think that that's a that's really a first world problem. You know, you you find yourself as a, a at a racetrack with a fancy jacket, but it's not quite fancy enough. You know, something like that. Uh, in relation to someone who is not able to feed themselves or their family, it's kind of a weird juxtaposition. <laughs> yeah, no, for sure. Um, and since we are kind of focusing on the United States, I mean, it was something worth mentioning, but. Um, you know, like there, there are a lot of people out there that are dealing with some pretty terrible circumstances. Uh, I, I can't remember, um, let's see, uh, some statistics, uh, right offhand. Uh, I think it's, uh, 20,000, somewhere around $20,000 a year for a family of four equals abject poverty. Yeah, in the United States. right around there. And number of people in the United States living in that range, it's about 15% of the population and uh, at or below. And so that's like one in six people, which is pretty shitty if you think about it in those terms. Yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm sure that that is exacerbated in certain areas of the country. Uh, yes. I, I find myself living in a pretty expensive housing market. And I, I'm just like, I don't know how... Like even my wife and I couldn't afford to live where we do if we made twenty thousand dollars a year. It's just not. It wouldn't be possible. So a family of four living here, uh, it just doesn't happen. I guess I, I don't know. Yeah. Maybe that's a that is a a function uh, of you know some of the the housing development that's occurred around here. Like they want to make sure that these people are sequestered in certain communities 
So where I'm living in a uh, in a pretty well-to-do neighborhood, I don't really see families of four, especially ones that you know have like you know ratty holes in their shirt and uh, you know sport coats that are less so than what I have. You know, right. just doesn't seem to happen. Hmm. Uh, uh, in fact, uh, there is um, there's this weird thing that they do uh, whenever you submit uh, an application to live here uh, before you sign your leasing agreement. They will review your income sources uh, to determine whether or not they are reliable and if you are actually able to pay the ridiculous sum that they require. <laughs> Think right. That Josiah and I had to do a similar thing when we were living in San Diego. Like San Diego is pretty awful when it comes to housing as well. well what, what yeah, is- no, definitely. I'd say, and this might segue into kind of the effects of poverty on someone in it. For San Diego, what it made me realize was pretty much if I didn't have family helping me out, I just like wouldn't have had a house in San Diego. Uh, what it was was... Um, to move in, you needed to, well, generally you'd give like uh, one month's rent and then like half of it as like uh, coverage. But in my case, I didn't have credit. Like it's not, it wasn't bad credit, it just didn't exist. And so yeah. because of that, they were like, okay, to move in, you're gonna pay for the month and then an extra month. Oh, yeah. uh, and so for <laughs> that to have been possible, like without family, well, it, it just wouldn't have have been. Uh, and so, I don't know, it's just like having not known that credit would have been like critical factor, so I hadn't been building it, and then them asking me that and how much money I had been saving, mm-hmm. uh, I just would have never been able to move in if someone hadn't uh, give me a little a boost to be able to pay that extra month. Yeah. Yeah, I, I've certainly been there before as well, um, you know, prior to engaging in any type of leasing opportunities. I, I hadn't built any credit either. I mean, where would I have the opportunity to? Like, I've never okay. been given the, uh, you know, the, the, the circumstances with which I could afford property. Like, that's, that's dumb. Like, people our age, like millennials especially, we don't expect to own property. We don't expect <laughs> – you have to have a credit card in our pockets in order to to pay our our proverbial tithes, so that we can actually enter into that that sector of the market. It's right. And so much bullshit. And credit is an entirely different thing, and, and serves a function in our society in its own right. Okay. Uh, but. Let's uh, let's let's talk a little bit about the the function of poverty. I mean, like, what what do you think? Who is that? Who is that serving to not allow you to enter into a leasing agreement without paying first and last month's rent, or just you know pushing you away from a leasing agreement of that quality because you didn't have that base payment to begin with? Like, why is that even there? Keep out the uh, pores. <laughs> why would you want to do that? Yeah, my- well, my read on it, because where we were going, it was it, it was already like, you know, a place most folks wouldn't want to be living. Uh, yeah. It was called City Heights, and most people, as uh, we were trying to move in there, were like, "Oh no, City Heights! Don't go there, City Heights!" You know, uh, and so it kind of it had a bad reputation. 
but in general, though, I'd say that situation, I don't know, it seems like for the person leasing it, like, you know, I, let's say I own the little apartment building and I'm trying to lease it out to somebody. Uh, I get, it makes sense from their point of view that if I can't know how well this person can or can't pay, mm -hmm. that I'm going to be more cautious with them. And so it's like, if they can pay me the first month, uh, since I don't know how much I'll be able to get from them afterwards or how reliable they'll be, that let me put kind of a higher premium on it. Like, and if they can meet that, then, you know, I'll be more comfortable letting them move in uh, yes. with the idea that, you know, I'll be getting my kind of uh, cost. Sure. Uh, although, I guess, rent in general would be like its own story about just owning a place and making money off of it. There's not a terrible number of costs for them. But, you know, and if I'm able to sell to someone who has credit or someone who doesn't, uh, and that other person's credit is decent, I'll probably give them the place first, right? Uh, if I'm trying to make reliable money back. Mm -hmm. uh, but yeah, but if like our experiences was we didn't have that credit history, like if it was family never told us about it or we didn't have family period to tell us about it uh, and didn't have a way to create it, then we're already kind of in a less uh, advantageous position. Mm -hmm. Which I think speaks to some of the poverty problems. Yeah. Well, speaking towards the, you know, the aspect of, of credit, having it or not having it, um, it's, uh, I don't know, like you, you want to be able to have something to hold over your, uh, the people who you're ultimately going to lease to. And if someone has been able to, up to this point, uh, manage their life without the, the fantastic advent that is, you know, free money from credit, then what are you going to be able to hold over them if something does happen to your property while they're living in it? Uh, if they burn the place down or if they steal a bunch of shit or if they break a bunch of things, like you're not going to be able to be like, oh, well, you know, now I'm going to like ruin your credit as a result of this because it's not worth anything to them to begin with. Right. Like if they're, not, they're not planning on buying property in the future. If they're not planning on working their way up the, the social hierarchy then why does it matter? Like, who cares? Yeah. They, they're just like, oh, well, if something goes wrong here, I'm just going to be homeless. Oh, well. No. Yeah, because everyone's just trying to cover their ass. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, was the place that you guys were leasing from, was that owned? Uh, was that the, the, the person who owned it, was that their only property that they were leasing? Uh, you know? I think they had a lot of different properties. It was like this Vietnamese like rental agency, uh, and they had a bunch of like low income kind of housing for understood all over the San Diego County area. And like where we lived was like pretty sketchy in the sense that no one person owned the entire apartment building. <laughs> different people owned each of the different like apartment rooms that were part of the building. Like we had a neighbor that had like uh, a Russian dude that was like their <laughs> renter. And then we had another neighbor that had someone else. Like no two people had the same renter so it was a weird living situation i don't even know how to fathom it honestly outside of the context mm -hmm. of san diego 
Yeah, it's it's really weird. I, more often than not, at least the places I lease from in the past have been owned by leasing companies, people oh, who yeah. own uh, an extraordinarily large chunk of land with which they have developed a property and then leased out to individual tenants. Right. Like the place I'm living right now is a well, I, I don't want to give it any names, but it's it's like a, a, a section of townhomes that takes up uh, about five blocks worth of space in this uh, this this bloated uh, housing market in the northeastern United States. Like it's it's just fantastically expensive. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get to thinking like if it's this expensive for me to live here for uh, a month. How expensive was it to acquire this property, develop this property, uh, and ultimately had that lag time between marketing the property for tenants and actually securing that type of money? Like, who has that? How is that possible? <laughs> right. And I'm guessing a lot of that, you know, for the person doing it, there'd be risk involved because, yeah, I don't think most, a lot of that money is something they'd have. And it would be kind of taking out a loan and being like, okay, we're going to spend this money, but then we're going to, the risk we're taking is that this will, we will turn this around for a profit once people are moving in. And, you know, I think that's where it gets kind of tough when I'm looking at the situation where it's just like, you know, there's somebody... Uh, and it's probably not like this for whatever 1% of wealth, you, you, they can kind of toss it around willy nilly, but for somebody who would actually take a risk where it could go bad for them to do a housing development, like, you know, the one you're describing, mm-hmm. uh, I can't, it, it makes sense from their perspective in protecting their investment that, you know, I'm not going to lease to the person who's got like, no credit or bad credit. Uh, but if we were trying to get to, I guess, uh, the poverty aspect of all of this, it'd be, you know, and, and Jimmy, I think this is where you were trying to get to, mm-hmm. would be how when you're in poverty, it kind of like multiplies being in poverty further. <laughs> so it's just yeah. like, because I didn't have credit or because my credit's bad, because of whatever previous poverty situation I was in, now it's harder for me to get housing. And, and maybe we'll want to transition into, you know, what are the other effects of, you know, being in poverty? Like what kind of impact it has on keeping you in it or, or otherwise. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like uh, what, are, what are some of those status effects you were talking about, Jimmy? So status effects. So as you know, Dungeons and Dragons, you can be... <laughs> Uh, have negative effects on your character that, that that will be sustained until you get those effects removed. In this case, uh, the status effect of poverty has <laughs> a lot of negative conditions on your character, such as mm-hmm. less likely to obtain a, uh, a higher level of education. People that are in poverty are uh, much less likely to obtain a um, diploma from high school, much less any other form of higher education, the health of individuals that have uh, the status effect of poverty are also going to be uh, have much less good health 
worse health, I guess would have been the easier way to say that. But lower constitutions and lower vitality. Yeah, no, lower constitutions. Uh, their hit dice are going to be not as good. So, <laughs> yep. um, so difficulty in procuring armor as well. Because yeah, because that's a, that's a big one. Procuring uh, yeah. armor. <laughs> So, like, kind of as we said, like, there's, like, a certain level of education and knowledge you have to have to make good decisions, such as getting a credit score and increasing your credit. Uh, I mean, the same, the same is true for lots of different aspects of life, of knowing how to uh, apply for a university or a college to attend college. If your parents don't have that knowledge, they can't pass it on to you. Uh, if, if your parents aren't making good, healthy uh, eating decisions and you... You learn how to eat from your parents, and maybe your parents, uh, since they're in a low-income situation, you end up eating a lot of fast food and a lot of ready-made um, microwave dinners and stuff like that. That's the knowledge that you take on into adulthood of how mm-hmm. you live your life. So uh, ba- basically, it, poverty is going to have a negative effect on every aspect of your life and how you live it later on. But there are some positive aspects to poverty, right? No. Well, who else is going to do the dirty jobs? <laughs> I uh, yes. Like for the okay, so the, for the individual in poverty, there's no benefit. It's not like it's not you're not like the daredevil, right? Where it's like, "Oh, he's blind, but now he can hear really good. He's got like the superpower." It's not like, "Oh yeah. Oh, he has no money." <laughs> so like, you know, that that makes these other things are strange. Yeah. You can you can like hear overweight people from the block away, you know, like they shuffle it around. Their hearts are beating too yeah. hard. Like <laughs> that's something I want. Know, in America okay. is everywhere. So <laughs> I don't know. I can't. I can't really speak to this for the U.S. But you know, oddly enough, for the daredevil uh, theory here um, in Haiti, I'd say it, and it's kind of. You kind of have to twist it oddly to make it like a, a superpower, okay. <laughs> but people do people do become very resourceful in like making use of any kind of like product or item that they have. So it's just like even cooking wise, it'd be like an easy example in terms of like using every piece of the animal for something. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in an odd way, I guess. You know, it, it for ninety five percent negative. Uh, maybe there are some ways that it like uh, has you operate differently, where maybe you become, in some instances or in some ways, a little more resourceful. I can see that. Yeah. Or at least less wasteful. I don't know. So that's a silver lining. Uh, that's really interesting that we've we've already approached that. Usually we save silver lining until the very end of the episode, <laughs> and then Jimmy and I will fumble over it trying to figure <laughs> out where the good is at <laughs> in these sad situations. <laughs> but <laughs> yeah, good. but I mean, it's like a good enveloped, like deep inside the recesses of a whole bunch of like sad because yeah. you have to be resourceful because everything is garbage right which going back you know like you you, you don't necessarily want the people who are going to be doing uh waste management or you know doing some type of uh, agrarian like uh, difficult manual labor you don't want them to have the choice not to do that because if that does end up being the case and you don't have people who are growing your food or 
you know, taking away your trash, we're just going to have mounds of trash and no food, I guess. Because <laughs> that's how well, it works, right? Even, so even with the argument of uh, people having to fulfill these jobs that aren't necessarily very fun that we associate with people in poverty performing, uh, wh- why not flip this on its head and say, well, why can't we afford to pay these people a living wage to do these jobs we consider poverty-stricken, right? Like, if we know there's an issue where people in these jobs are stuck in poverty, why not just pay those people more money, right? Mm-hmm. Well, that's true, but, like, what if what if the unit by which they're getting paid... Uh, I mean, it, I think that the, the tool of currency is something that is easily manipulated. So in the instance that you're paying someone more, let's say that you have a... A universal basic income. I'm, I'm sure both of you gentlemen have heard about this. Uh, universal basic income for those of you listening to the podcast and have not heard of it uh, is just a, a a flat sum that each each citizen within a municipality is paid. Uh, you know, in incremental basis. You know, monthly or weekly or what have you, uh, just for being there, just for being alive. Uh, and uh, this has been touted as being a way to mitigate poverty, to ensure that people are getting paid uh, enough to rise out of abject poverty, be able to uh, afford housing and food and what have you. Uh, But the issue that a lot of people bring up uh, is the free market economy that surrounds uh, the possibility of UBI. What if uh, I I started to receive a UBI where I'm living in this expensive housing market? And then my landlord catches wind of the fact that I'm definitely going to be making an extra thousand dollars a month or however much my UBI is paying me. What if he's just like, well, okay, your rent's a thousand dollars more now. Like what's preventing them from doing something like that? It seems like that that tool could still technically be in place, even if people were getting paid a living wage as opposed to a UBI. I see what you're saying. And so I guess what we would have to hope is that the the you know majestic invisible hand of the market would make it to where other housing developments wouldn't increase their rent by a thousand dollars in order to attract people to live in those places but i guess i so guess if you were living in an area where let's say theoretically all the apartments are full right they're all full they don't have to worry about tenants there's more people looking for housing uh, than than uh, apartment complexes looking for tenants, then I guess they theoretically mm-hmm. could all just increase their the price by a thousand dollars. When we talked about our episode with uh, higher education, we definitely saw there may be a correlation between the United States government offering mm-hmm. money and loans more willy nilly to people trying to attend college and colleges taking advantage yep. of this uh, bonus source of income and upping their tuition rates. So yep. I don't know. Uh, I mean, I guess that theoretically could happen. I guess if we're going to get even more complex, we could say, well, then the government, you know, should have some oversight and, you know, put a cap on you know, housing costs. Uh, blah, 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 blah. I don't know. There is. Uh, in Well, in, in some jurisdictions, I, I know where I live, the rent cannot increase annually beyond a certain percentage. And I want to say it's around 8%, um, which is still uh, a very right, high sum. much higher than like, inflation or the way that you know pe- people's uh, yes. income increases. 
Mm -hmm. And uh, and that's you know that's not always the case. Sometimes it doesn't increase. In fact, this past year when I signed up, didn't increase at all from the previous year, but it was exorbitantly expensive prior to that. <laughs> I guess they had already accounted for it in previous years. Right. I don't know. Uh, but uh, yeah, I mean, in some some jurisdictions, regulations have been put into place, but there's always a political discourse that sometimes uh, ends up leaning the way of the the more traditional and uh, you know, forces people to still behave much in the in the same way that we have for many generation. And, you know, like we're, we're still in this kind of like feudal sense. I mean, it's it's feudalism with money. Right. Right. Like, yeah. So, like, you know what I mean? Right. I mean, think about the, the, the tenets of which this uh, country was founded on. Right. When we when we first set up this country, the United States of America, it was like, all right, all right, all right. We got this great thing. It's going to it's for everybody. It's for everyone. But only white dudes with land are able to vote. Right. And so what, yep. that's like the basis of your country. You, know, you could change the laws and stuff to let more people vote and et cetera, what have you. But. I, I mean, I feel still feel like that place is like a core basis for a society of it's it's made for the, you know, the landowners and the people that control the industry and whatever. Right. The, the system's built to mm. put them first and foremost. Yeah. Well, of course, mm -hmm. I'd say I think housing. Yeah. Housing is definitely a complicated one. I think that's a interesting point for the universal income in terms of like you know if now you just have some more income to I don't know maybe if you were in a tough situation maybe now this is giving you an opportunity to get out of it how that might just be squandered by certain prices just increasing to kind of pull that away from you mm -hmm. uh, and yeah I think you know, it sounds like there's some regulations to prevent predatory rent prices but you know i don't otherwise i, I don't see anything preventing that from happening and mm -hmm. then jimmy i think the point you made about kind of the founding of the u.s kind of being preferential to certain groups mm -hmm. i think the two the two topics might actually or subjects might actually relate a little bit in the sense that like or, or I guess the point I'd be curious to look into would be how uh, certain uh, advantages from the kind of onset of the country itself has kind of put people in position uh, to be, let's say, the owner of the apartment complex right. as opposed to someone just renting um, in I guess, would it be generally unfair that, like, they're the owner and I'm the renter because they had, like, unfair advantages from the get-go? Yeah. Or is there an argument to be made that, you know, hey, they've just been, like, working hard, and if I'm working hard, maybe not myself, but my kid or their kid of being a, you know, owning position as opposed to a renting position. I don't know what you guys would say about uh, something like that. Well, it, taking an, an ethical approach to the distribution of wealth is something that I think the impoverished and the disadvantaged have always typically done. Uh, it, it seems like 
conservative arguments revolve around this idea of a meritocracy, uh, which distances itself from any type of, of uh, moral obligation just by saying, you know, people who work the hardest are going to be the people who are going to be most successful. You know, like the the uh, resources are going to be divvied out accordingly uh, to those who are, uh, you know, more naturally fit, uh, so to speak. Um, uh, have you you guys have both played Monopoly? You guys are familiar with this game? Milton, yeah. Milton Bradley, right? Uh, so. There was this great little thing that we did. Uh, I, I took a couple of social science courses when I was at, at college. Uh, and for our viewers out there, we all went to the same college. So <laughs> You've all been brainwashed by the same. Shout, shout out to Berea College. <laughs> uh, shout out to Berea College. Whoop, whoop, whoop. Uh, <laughs> which if you guys are, what, which, uh, which episode did we talk about uh, Berea's uh, uh uh, when you we know, talk, the, 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 when we talked about college tuition being too high, we talked about how we have no justice for talking about that subject since we don't have any debt. <laughs> yeah, we don't have any debt, but you know that there there's a reason for that, and Berea is a very unique circumstance. But anyways, not to get too far off topic, go back and listen to that episode if you're more interested. Um, uh, monopoly, right? Uh, there was this type of monopoly uh, whenever. We began the game instead of everyone receiving the same amount of money, uh, you know, just to, to give people an idea of what it would be like uh, to live in this unequal world. People were given, you know, thousands more dollars. Some people started out with five dollars. And obviously, you know, there there's a, a uh, an element of variability in the game. You know, you have dice. Uh, so that could certainly represent something in real life. Uh, like a, a windfall, a, um, a job opportunity, uh, hard work, uh, intelligence, um, all of these different things that are not necessarily guaranteed at the beginning of one's life. But more often than not, and I don't think there was a single group in the class that overcame the person who received thousands of dollars more at the onset of the game simply because of their ability to, to have that running start. Um, it's, it's not, it's not fair, uh, going back to what Josiah said, like it's, it's, there's this, there's this unequal, it, like if you're, if you're looking at life as a zero sum game, you know, you've, you got your winners and your losers, uh, the winners have been winning for a long time and there's nothing to say that those winners are going to stop winning anytime soon, unless you change the way that the game progresses, which is like, if we're I was Go saying, ahead. Which is the yeah, whole, sure. I mean, issue with wealth in general is that you can pass it on, right? Like, uh, yeah. And so, I mean, it just multiplies over time. I mean, obviously, I guess uh, an individual theoretically could squander the wealth they inherited from their parents. And then I guess that it would be read somehow distributed. I can't speak distributed <laughs> to the rest of society with whoever bought those parts of that wealth. And then yada, 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 yada. I mean, more likely than not, I would assume that that wealth when it gets redistributed would be redistributed to other wealthy individuals that see, uh, an opportunity to make their own wealth bigger. It'd be like, Oh, this is some, you know, uh, media company, I'm Disney, let me buy it because this guy's an idiot, right? It's not going to be redistributed to the people that need it the most. I mean, uh, so 
uh, me with my 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 libtard snowflake agenda, I would make the argument that uh, we should do better to make the economy work for people that are poor in order to help enable them to get out of poverty. Like I was reading this one article, for example, that in Detroit, uh, basically the amount of if you're making, I think, is like eleven point. $11.5 an hour living in Detroit, you'd be making enough money to where you'd basically be disenfranchised from all of your benefits from the, the state and federal government. So you're making too much money to be on benefits now, right? Ah. But now, yep. uh, the, the amount of... So, but if you're making... Uh, I'm trying to think how to word this correctly. And so if you're making minimum wage while receiving these benefits, the amount of increase in quality of life, these benefits would be enhancing your life would be as if you were making uh, $18 an hour. So you're, you're basically incentivized in a lot of cases <laughs> as a poor that. person to make less money in order to have a higher <laughs> quality of life. And, and so I don't know exactly what kind of policy changes would need to take place, but it's just like a good example of how someone who is poor would be, would remain poor and have no incentive for trying to make more money because I think it would be very unlikely for someone who's working a minimum wage job making, you know, seven, eight dollars an hour to somehow magically jump and get a twenty dollar an hour job somewhere else in order to have a quality of life equivalent to her, uh, a, a life being stuck on uh, government aid. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, and I think that's uh yeah, for for the monopoly in what you're saying. Mm -hmm. Jimmy, I guess for the monopoly, one question I'd have uh, in terms of like that kind of an experiment to show how mm -hmm. life kind of can evolve would be what in our actual history would we consider the beginning of the game? Like at what point were people given an unfair advantage uh, would be one thing I think would would be important to talk about. And then... For your point, Jimmy, I feel like, yeah, there's there's something going on with, like, heritage, kind of, like, passing things down. And I think you were mentioning about, kind of, early in the podcast, no knowledge being passed down. So, like, if, you, if your parents knew about credit, you know, now you know about mm -hmm. credit, right? Uh, and so that's already an advantage. And I'm wondering, and, and I guess now with the question of, merit or non-merit like for the person who was poor and as unlikely as it tends to be but like you know become uh much more wealthy like that was them certainly we'd have to give them some credit for working hard there's there's always some luck mixed into any success story uh but then like for their you know, children or whatever uh, people would inherit from them, I guess squaring that circle of, okay, there's some wealthy people that we don't feel deserve it, but some people work for that and like share that knowledge and share that inheritance. And that is okay. I guess figuring out what is okay with one and not okay with the other would be, I think, central to, to the argument, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. That's a good point. Okay, so, well, let's let's start from the beginning then, right? <laughs> yeah, what's uh, the beginning of this new Monopoly game? Yeah, so where where does where does the game start? Um, there was a work 
produced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau, uh, the Genevian uh, philosopher, in 1754 uh, for uh, – there, there, it was a response to a prize competition for the Academy of Dijon answering the prompt, what is the origin of inequality among people – <clears throat> and is it authorized by natural law? So he writes the discourse on the origin and basis of inequality among men, uh, also commonly known as the second discourse. Uh, so in this, he he tries to explain the difference between the human state of nature. Uh, so basically this kind of savage man that is living in isolation uh, avoids conflict with other people, uh, only uses what he needs to to survive, uh, doesn't have any idea of hierarchy or prestige or wealth. All of these things are uh, developed and defined by the establishment of a civil society, which presents the, the problem of private property uh, as a basis for inequality. Uh, so where exactly do you justify private property? And this is something that that I myself have like. There there are arguments all over the place. Uh, in fact, uh, the opposition to Jean Jacques Rousseau was going to be Thomas Hobbes, which you, we were talking about founding fathers earlier. Uh, a lot of our uh, constitution in regards to what private property is uh, and how one can secure and protect it. Uh, revolves around his philosophy of what private property is. So it's 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 difficult to define. Once you once you kind of venture out from being a savage man, how do you establish private property? Uh, either either one of you gentlemen, what what well, do you think? How how would you? Do? I think that from if we're gonna if we're gonna look at it historically and think about Thomas Hobbes and these founding father figures uh, laying out private property for them at the time. Private property was more of a revolutionary idea and more uh, democratic than what they were dealing with before, because we got to think with like England and the crown and stuff like that under that rule. I mean, not maybe in the 1700s, but uh, previously under uh, monarchic rule, the, the king owns everything, right? Like all the lands, the kings and no one technically owns land. You're basically just loaning it from the king. And that's why he's so filthy fucking rich. Uh, so from their perspective, because he has divine right, yeah, exactly. Cause he has divine right. <laughs> so then, you know, you can take like a step from there and say like, well, maybe the, not just the King should get to own all the land. Maybe individuals should get to own land too. Right. And so, which is like a step further of more equal distribution of land for people to own and benefit from. But uh, not to get all hippy, dippy, whatever, I feel like at some point we're going to have to uh, draw a line in the sand and being like, okay, well, all of these private uh, landowners are essentially becoming the equivalent of like kings in their own right with like the wealth they've been able to amass or private ownership. So how can we say like what is just and fair for the amount of whatever you can you can fucking own? I don't know. Yeah, and I think from what I recall for those guys, I think, I don't know if it was consensus, but I know at least one of them, uh, the central point was, it's your private property once you've kind of like taken whatever it is and added value to it through your personal labor. Yes. Uh, and so in, instilling that into it, 
uh, it kind of gives it uh, make, makes it private to you now. Mm -hmm. that, that's yeah. Uh, yeah, that's Leviathan. That's mm -hmm. um, uh, or not Leviathan. That's uh, that's John Locke, uh, mm -hmm. Second Treatise of Government, sixteen ninety. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So once once you exhibit some type of labor on it, you you appropriate it, uh, mm -hmm. and that's fair. Like why not? Like as long as it's no one else's, as long as everyone has the same ability to be able to appropriate a similar amount of property, then what's preventing you from, in an ethical sense, what's preventing you from going and developing the land in some way, building a house on it, growing crops on it, uh, you know, making it into some type of like hunter-gatherer thing? What's wrong with that? As long as everybody has the same opportunity to do that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess now we get into the same opportunity to do that. Okay, so there there are so many people on Earth, right? So if you divide up the entire Earth, uh, in a sense, <laughs> seven billion, eight billion people. Yeah, well, but I also don't know like how many how many square miles are there on the Earth? God damn it! You know, like there are a lot. How much are water? You know, that that definitely cuts it down a little bit. But it's it's possible that each person could have uh, a similar amount of land and be able to develop it accordingly. And then every time someone's born, your piece of land gets a little bit smaller. I like this and thought then experiment so far. This is good. And then some, some <laughs> people will be stuck in like the fucking desert. Be like, my land fucking sucks. There's <laughs> right. no fucking water here or electricity. Like, sorry, you pulled the short stick. Everyone gets the same amount of land. No, this is yours. How do you decide the desert? Who gets the desert part? Yeah. Maybe it is a stick system. <laughs> I'll, I'll take one of the Caribbean islands. That sounds nice. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, but yes, the continue with this. Dividing the whole land to everybody. And so, now you just... Mm -hmm. Yeah, you'd have to... Well, you'd probably have to come up with some type of, uh, of you know, common sense of value. Like, uh, you, you can't necessarily be giving people uh, an acre of desert for every acre of forest because obviously the resources that are relegated to that particular portion of land are not equivalent. So in order to, uh, you know successfully divide desert lands, maybe that person would receive 10 times the amount of, you know, surface area uh, in accordance to someone who would receive that. But I guess, I guess the problem relies in whoever's distributing the land and who ultimately is going to have the power to be able to enforce these political boundaries, I, I guess would essentially what they would become. Kind of like states, right? So mm -hmm. you have a you have a government, you have some type of legislative body that has a monopoly on uh, the all important violence. Uh, people who have the ability to be able to push people out from lands to reappropriate uh, certain areas uh, to ensure that this fairness is carried out, at least to the vision of the. The individuals in power, which unfortunately has historically been monarchies, aristocracies, bureaucracies, like in the case of the United States, uh, and you know all of these this wealthy ruling class of people who are not necessarily indebted to the people in which they supposedly represent. So, how do you ensure that there is going to be some type of fair discourse between the yeah. majority of poor peoples? You can't. Can you not? 
I don't know. I don't know, man. <laughs> <laughs> right. So uh, many moving parts. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like if, it, like you're saying to me, too many moving parts to go to like the beginning of time here. And so I'd say maybe if we've gotten to the point of, okay, there's like countries in general vying for power and I guess let's just say land, divvying up land. Uh, instead of like going to the whole world level, let's come to the U.S. and we'll just take the U.S. as a country now being in charge, being the group that's divvying stuff up. I guess, yeah, now we can look into how were things set up, uh, like the Monopoly game, to maybe give advantage to some groups and not others. Well, you, you and, a legislative body, like the professor. You know, they were like, you get this much money and you get that much money. Yeah. And, and I guess maybe what I'll be, be a curious point about this would be, you know, for the U.S. historical context, it'd be, you know, certainly uh, white, male, and I guess maybe Christian, too. I don't know if that was kind of in the mix. Uh, landowners, one, I guess, could decide who the legislators are, but I guess from the get-go could even own land to begin with, yep. uh, and land becoming a criteria for other things. But I guess if today, you know, poverty isn't only reality for black Americans, but it's true for white Americans, I guess how, how do we explain that, okay, white folks had access to certain resources and, you know, whatever else that black people didn't, Mm-hmm. Well, why are they also, why aren't they categorically as a group all uh, well off? Well, I mean, you had individuals that were landowners, right? They, they were very specific white landowners. N- not to insinuate that all whites were landowners, but the whites that happened to be landowners were the ones that could call the shots, right? There was plenty of poor schmucks coming over from Germany and Ireland and whatever, working as farmers or blacksmiths or whatever, I guess, on the property of these other white people that actually owned the townships and what have you. The English. What's that? Mm -hmm. By and large, the English. Like the the people who established colonies to begin with are the people that were able to appropriate it from native populations. Yeah. Like those are those are the people, at least in an ethnic sense, that were able to secure property more readily because they they took it from people who had no idea what private property was to begin with. And I would say the ramifications of how you can see it today is so while there are poor whites, obviously still uh, from if you look at it statistically, there's proportion to their uh, population like more blacks are in poverty right like a higher percentage of blacks are in poverty than uh, whites uh, because I mean they they had a very late game start right because they had a long period of time while living in the United States they were slaves and then even after they obtained freedom they still didn't have the the rights to do a lot of different things such as vote and so they didn't have that kind of power and then even when they joined the workforce they were restricted to uh shittier jobs that they couldn't make as much wealth from and so i mean i think that's a pretty blatant uh example of how you can see how having a later start in the game can leave you with a lot less wealth and resources not not only a later start but you're actually helping some of the people who are wealthy cheat a little bit 
because they 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 own you as a commodity in order to secure their own wealth or increase it thereby. It's like, uh, you know, they get extra die rolls because they have you on their team or something like that. Like, Mm -hmm. uh, so going back, like if you, if you want to be fair about this, is it fair to redistribute land from, uh, you know, especially individuals who have profited off of slavery in the past? Uh, to take that those resources and then give them back to uh, you know generations that followed some of the people that were slaves. I would say that while it would be fair, I don't see it happening, and I would be much more invigorated and excited about implementing policy within the world we live in now to try to make the playing field more even. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, more even. Well, because it's a game, and maybe that's maybe that's the inherent problem when we look at inequality in general. We see it as this kind of competition to, I guess, secure power or a way to exact what we believe to be true and valuable in our independent lives. Like, you know, why else is it important to be wealthy? I mean, because we live in a, in a society that respects individuals who have the right jacket on because it's it's OK to look down our noses at individuals who aren't able to uh, secure uh, safe or, or affordable housing or enough to eat and say it's because you haven't worked hard enough. Makes you feel good about ourselves. I mean, if you make enough money in America, you can run for president and win. So, I mean, obviously, we give a we care a lot about wealth. It's all for sale. Yeah. In fact, uh, I was I was talking with uh, with someone this morning uh, about this very topic, and there's this um, there's this uh, principle in psychology. I think it's called the the independent versus actor. Uh, I think it's independent versus actor phenomenon. And uh, if if we are struggling independently from, uh, you know, impoverished circumstances, it's because society did it to us. You know, it's because there was uh, some type of, you know, circumstance that prevented us from securing wealth in an effective way. But if it's somebody else, you know, if we're looking at the actors around us, then it's, it's their own damn fault. It's something that they did. It's, it's too much drugs. It's too much drinking. It's, uh, you know, poor use of money, being stupid, you know, what have you. Uh, so it's, I, I don't know, it, I think it could be considered a natural human phenomenon to not necessarily be able to place yourself in the in the situation that others might be struggling with. Are you suggesting that living in our society isn't good for putting empathy on people when they look at others? <laughs> I don't think that we're as good at it as we need to be. That's for sure. Yeah. And it, it might be not even society level. It might just be like, I don't know, biological level. Just like not very good at, or, or we tend to make excuses for ourselves, but not for others or, you know, the other way around sometimes. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I, I think that is a, a kind of idea I've heard uh, regarding psychology. Also, I think, it was more at like even personal relationship level of, you know, when something goes bad, it's their fault, not mine. But I can definitely see that expanding to like, you know, I'm here because I did well or I'm not here because of external factors. Whereas you, the second you see someone else in a bad situation, it's like, well, you know, 
you should have done what I did, or you should have been doing better. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Shitty people. So, guys, uh, how do we fix this? How do we uh, solve poverty? Josiah, go. Um, well, I mean, a big thing. So, like, universal basic income, for example. I think it, what we're already sensing about it, you know, for whatever positive aspect it would have, the weakness of it in terms of being a solution to poverty would be, you know, if I'm, if we're playing, if we go from the monopoly example, you know, all you're doing would be to give me more money to give to the people whose houses and hotels I land on. Right. Yeah. Uh, what would actually be a solution in a sense, or at least what would exist in the solution would be, it's not just here's more money, it's like here's access to the means of production itself. Like here's land, here's like a business or whatever it might be. Not just like here's the money to buy things. It's like now you own things that people buy. How, how that happens is kind of a bigger question, but I think any solution wouldn't be just here's money It'd be here's resources that you can use to make money from. Yes. That's a good point. I, I totally agree with that. It's it's distancing ourselves from money as a commodity because money is, is essentially just it's debt. It's a way to uh, commoditize labor or a human resource and store it in a symbolic measurement uh, so that we can – we can use that as trade. So it's taking advantage of that commodity that ultimately produces the inequality on such a vast scale because people are able to acquire it without necessarily doing any additional labor. Mm -hmm. Um, But not to get too far off on that, I think, I think the real way to solve this, have you guys ever heard of Shirley Jackson's the lottery? Are you familiar with this story? No, it's a little allegory written or published in the 1948 issue of the New Yorker. Uh, and uh, in this story, there is a, a, a quaint little town that practices this unusual ritual in which all of the members in the town take a slip of paper that have their name on it. They put it into a bucket, and then uh, once every so often, one of the names is drawn out, and that person is killed. Murdered. <laughs> Murdered. Okay. So what I'm suggesting here hang, – hang with me – is – Everyone that earns a certain amount of income, I'm talking like an extraordinary amount of income, you know, billionaires plus, all their names go into a fucking oh, no. basket. So that way they're encouraged <laughs> to get rid of their money, so that way they're not in the hat? That's right. You de-incentivize wealth. That's how you do it. That way, every year when this thing rolls around, these guys are like, oh, my God, I have to give away all my money or I'm going in the lottery. And there's a possibility because there's only fucking five of us. That I'm going to die. That's like 20% chance. Yeah. <laughs> you, you can't do that. So, yeah. Or just make it simple and be like, are you the wealthiest person on earth? Okay, you die. <laughs> Redistribute their resources. Good. Simple as that. Good. Okay. So, um, with a disclaimer there, uh, any of our listeners that decide to try to enact this, uh, you didn't hear it here first. Uh, blame it on Shirley Jackson. She's the one that wrote the damn story. Exactly. Uh, she came up with this. Yeah. <laughs> you were just 
telling people about what she wanted to do. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Exactly. Right. It's like the, the, air, the air quotes thing. It's like, it's illegal to say, I'm going to kill the president of the United States, right? But I said that in quotes, <laughs> so it's fine. In quotes. Uh, exit quote, yes. In quotes. <laughs> Uh, precisely. Okay, so I think it's probably about time to find some silver linings. We mentioned one earlier. You know, poverty is something that certainly encourages resourcefulness. Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, that's definitely a, a a good aspect of poverty. What, what, what do you guys think? What what are what are some other silver linings here? Hmm. I'd say you know no great music ever came out of just like <laughs> yes. happiness and comfortability. Oh That's right. <laughs> That's actually true. So I'd say, you know, terrible silver lining is, you know, the world of music would probably be way worse with, without some poverty out there. That's so true. Yep. That's actually That's true. a great silver lining. Yeah. Imagine like a blues song about somebody wearing the wrong jacket onto the upper store. <laughs> You know, right. Right. Very good. wrong jacket and they left at me. <laughs> right? It's so sad. It's terrible. Oh, <laughs> like, you know, this will resonate with everybody. Yep. <laughs> They'll all get it. <laughs> uh, oh, excellent point. Oh, that is fantastic. Okay. Well, so that's that. That's our silver lining. That's it. Uh, you don't have one, Tim? I don't. No. <laughs> Silver lining. Okay, okay, okay. I'll I'll give it a shot. Uh, what does poverty do? Oh man. Yeah. I mean, it would it would just be things that relate to those two things. Like they're just like stuff that you know, like human beings uh, that that live lives of luxury and are unable to recognize the value of strife and trying hard. Uh, are missing one of those integral parts of being a human being in which from from birth to the grave we constantly have to fight for our survival against all odds in order to uh, I don't know where I'm going with yeah. that uh, <laughs> uh, yeah that's pr- that's pretty much it uh, that's all I got I, I, want, I was I, got. I was thinking and I was gonna make the argument that you know experiencing awful things like poverty gives you more empathy in the sense that you have a better understanding mm. for other yeah. people that have experienced and gone through that and mm-hmm. not to get too political but then i think about like yeah. poor white like trump voters that are like trying to enact these policies of building a wall like they can't recognize the humanity and people trying to cross the border to increase their quality of life because their life's awful. And then, so I yeah. take my, my, my empathy silver lining and throw it out the window. So. <laughs> yeah. That's pretty sad. Yeah. That's a t- topic for another podcast, right? Why are some poor folks supporters of, I don't know, people who don't seem to be on their side. Yeah. That, yeah. It's, Seems, Curious, yeah, seems to be a reoccurring issue. Okay, so now is the part that we talk about what makes us sad. Josiah, why are you sad? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I'd say saddest, I don't know, saddest part about it for me, it's just like... Or personal sadness, too. It could be anything, any yeah. kind of sadness. 
Oh, I'll, I'll keep it on po- topic with poverty. I'll, okay. Uh, which it, what is saddest about it for me would be for, I guess, the lack of opportunities that it gives you as an individual, you know, for what you could have been in life, uh, done, experienced, known, mm-hmm. just because of, you know, some potentially unjust historical, you know, momentum and trajectory, you just like aren't given the opportunities to live a life that you could have lived um, and known and experienced the things that you could have uh, with just some different opportunities. Mm. It's a a good point. So um, I don't know about you, Jimmy, but... uh, what makes Josiah sad makes me feel really shitty about what I'm sad about. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. That was a lot. Yeah. It, that I was, suck at that. But. Yeah, that was, um, yeah, that's heart wrenching. And, uh, yep. there's a lot of people out there that, that don't get their fair shot. And I'm over here like, Oh, well I'm sad because I've recently tried to get into hobby blacksmithing and, uh, it, it makes too much noise. <laughs> Wait, it's not, it's not your sad thing. I'm worried that my well-to-do neighbors are gonna complain. Oh my god. Well, I mean, I didn't know we could like we, we were supposed to say a sad thing about anything because I mean no. that's like that's disappointing, man. That's pretty no, sad. It, it's supposed to be anything. Tim and I are just selfish, so whenever we talk about sad things that affect us, we talk about what's immediately affecting us. Got it. Got so it. comparatively, it's just it's just not as good. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes well, it's like, yeah, my oh, personal oh. sad one would not be that good either. <laughs> do, do you want to give? A, do you have a personal sad thing you want to share? Oh man, okay. Well, you if you guys want, like, yeah, the, the same kind of thing. It'd be I bought a yes, yes, vintage fountain pen, right? <laughs> yeah. From a person who was reputable as like restoring them well, yeah. and you know, I I was figuring this like. Parker 51, which is kind of like the go-to vintage fountain pen for anyone getting into fountain pens. I was like, all right, I'm going to buy it from this dude. And it's going to work and it's going to be good. And the ink flow is not good. Like, it's oh, just not oh. good. And it's, I'm sad about it. Damn. Is there anything you can do to, like, be compensated or be like, hey, this pen fucking sucks. I'm going to send yeah. it back and you're going to fix it. And he's he he'd be down with me sending it back, and you can mess with the flow, uh, and so I think you know it'll eventually be good. Okay. Uh, but you know it's it's still very sad that this thing that I've been like excited to get isn't you know as functional uh, as I was hoping. Yeah. No. That, that's total. Yeah. It's pretty sad. Yeah, no, I feel that. Yeah, if we're going with those kind of things, yeah. Yes, please. Those, man. You kidding me? <laughs> yeah, that's what Tim and I need, so we don't sound like shit. So, okay, so <laughs> Tim's sad that his blacksmithing is more loud than he wanted it to be. Okay. I'm, I'm just very low level sad that it's, it's been rainy the last couple of days and looks like it's gonna stay rainy for the next couple of weeks. And I just wanna, I just wanna go outside. Like, why has it got to rain on the weekend? I know that's really petty, <laughs> but like. Come on. I get two days off. Why has it got to rain? I hear you. That's all I, that's all I got. It's okay, man. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. We'll make it through these things somehow. 
Yeah, well, somehow, yeah, <laughs> in comparison to abject poverty, we'll somehow hey, make it through. Well, hey guys, we're, we're gonna we're gonna fight through this. Mm-hmm. I love it. Right. <laughs> well, this was our episode on poverty. Uh, if you have anything you would like to say to us, whether uh, spiritual remarks, maybe maybe you experienced poverty, abject poverty, at some time in your life, and you have a uh, little story or anecdote you'd like to share with us, please email us at cynicempowerment at gmail.com. You can also like us on Facebook where you can get updated on when any of our episodes come out. And yeah, I think that's pretty much it. You guys have anything else to add? It probably goes without saying that this episode could have continued much longer. Uh, There is a whole lot to say about poverty, and in the future maybe we'll take another stab at it. Thank you so much for being on the show, Josiah. It was a lot of fun, man. Yeah, and that'd be my words. Thank you very much for having given me the honor of being the first guest on the show. It was very fun. Oh, anytime. You're welcome back anytime. Thank you. Thank you. All right. So, everybody, um, keep your head up, and uh, we'll catch you next time. Yeah, catch you next time, everybody. Donate food to a food bank. Yup. Boop, 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 boop.